Do you aspire to become a responsible leader? How do you see yourself now as a young man? Learning from challenges is one thing, but getting opportunities is another. If you're a young man who wants to learn about personal growth, life lessons, and leadership, tune in to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. Good, how are you? Great, man. Thank you for taking the time. This is a pleasure to uh, to meet you and get to chat here and, and to have you on. Um, this is great, man. Super, super, super honored. And, and uh, don't take an hour of your time lightly, for sure. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I, I love what you guys are doing here. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. And I don't know if Timmy's on here yet. He's I know he wants to try to get on here, too, and uh, and say hi. But man, I just want to give you, you know, context of what we got going on here and then uh, and then we'll rock and roll man um you know so tim and i sent you that clip from when we were on fox and, and tim and i have a very specific 12-month roadmap that that brings good men together gets them on a journey of intentional leadership you know in all areas of life faith family fitness finances philanthropy we do the same thing for young men all over the world and uh, many of the men that are on here with us right now will go on to partner with us you know as affiliates and launch their own coaching or k-12 through educational locations like we have been launching uh, and throughout the process, we get the honor of bringing in mentors who are the best of the best of the best in the world. And uh, we get to run. It well, as a- I don't know. I don't know if I fit into any of that, but I love Dude, what you're doing. Well, I'll tell you what, brother. So we've, you know, Patrick Bed David says otherwise. We've had him on Andy Frazella, Brian Callen, JP Sears, Zuby. Uh, we just had Jamie Kilstein on with us. Right. And these guys. I all- love all those guys. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And the, and the respect goes uh, goes your way as well, man. So if they have anything to say about it, uh, I think we're in good company, man. So and I'll tell you one of the things, man, I'm fascinated by great communicators. And I believe you are one of those. No, well, thank very well, you. Very much so. Very well informed, very articulate. The comedy side is one thing, obviously phenomenal there, but very articulate and able to express views in other, you know, other mediums as well. And I'm fascinated by people who understand and fight for freedom and liberty. And yeah. that's what this mission is all about, man. So um, that's what I want to dive into you and I want to highlight you and we'll get that out today. So are you ready to save the world or or what, man? Let's do it. Hell yeah, let's do it. Right, freaking on, man. So I, I would love to, these guys know who you are, man. They know what you've been up to. They know about the stand-up. They know about your show. They know about um, you know what you stand for and what you're doing. Before we get into letting them ask the questions, where did that freedom mindset come from for you because it sure as hell is not something that we are taught we are we you know and then the schools we'll get into schools too because you and i see eye sure. to eye on those which is why i build the schools i do that don't look anything like the conveyor belt programming right so where did that come from for you man oh that's a it, that's a actually a, a, it's a profound question with yeah. i don't know that i necessarily have the answer to i think um i i there were certainly people who influenced me along the way but I tend to think the older I get that it was something that was always in me. Yeah. You know, that was something that I always, I always, um, and I don't mean that I was opposed to authority, but I was always from a very young age opposed to BS authority. Yep. Like if there was an authority figure who you just kind of knew was full of it, I always hated that. As I remember this from being a very young kid. So I think that was always kind of in me to some degree. Yeah. Did you, how did that play out when you were in school? <laughs> what did that look uh, like? Because talk about a system built around BS authority. 
Yeah. And, and like a lot of, uh, the, the nature of like what modern day schooling is, is just simply that it's like, okay, someone's in the front of the row, everyone, you know, if someone's in the front of the class, everyone else is in the rows, you follow instructions, you, you, you know, memorize and regurgitate what they say to you. And that's what we call education, you know, and, and I all, I just, it never did it for me. I was always a terrible student. Um, but I did, I was always the uh, the student who teachers would be like, well, he's got potential, but he just doesn't yeah, apply yeah. himself type uh, thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, to me, it was like, I don't know. I just, I think looking back on it, at least I go, well, you didn't really give me anything that made me like motivated to be interested in it. And as soon as I found things that I was very motivated to be interested in, I got crazy interested in them. So, you know, that's just what it was. There you go. Yeah. So what, what was it about like the, the comedy, getting into political commentary, doing all the things that you were doing, being on these shows, where did you start to get your inspiration for that? How did you start to walk down that path? Just so we can give these guys kind of the 30,000 foot uh, sure. view of that. Well, I started doing stand-up comedy in in New York in uh, 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. And um, that was uh, literally just I, I, a friend of mine, uh, Luis Gomez, who's a great comedian and a great father as well. Uh, he started comedy and we were good friends and he kind of convinced me. I was hanging out with him a lot at the comedy clubs and he was like, dude, you're like the funniest guy. I know you got to start doing this. And, and I loved it. I just thought there's something so beautiful and romantic about just like, that's, you just get up on stage and make a room of people laugh. And there's just something that I was drawn to about that. And I wasn't into politics really at all. Although I was like, it was the, you know, it was like nine 11 was a big, moment I, I lived in new york city and yeah. like this so i was there when that happened and i also i was 18 or 17 18 when 9 11 happened and so i was very like uh I, you know like my my mother was very concerned that there was going to be a draft and that i was going to go you know like there so it was a big moment the george bush uh years had like in impact on me but i wasn't super political but it was uh ron paul's presidential campaign in 2008 it was actually in 2007 leading up to that that i saw him in one of the the republican uh debates the one of the republican primary debates and he just really grabbed me yeah and i was like yo this guy's really interesting and what is this we don't follow the constitution and like yeah. we're, we're supposed to and that, that's pretty compelling and then it just him talking about the ideas of a free society what the federal reserve is doing to our money i just found all of this really interesting and i just dove down this rabbit hole and kind of have never come out since. And that's been my journey since then. I, I love it, man. Yeah, the the Paul Brett, there was a very similar thing after 9-11 for me and, and um, was actually set to, so 9-11 happened my senior year of college. I was set to go to work at the White House. Um, had gone through all the background, was going to go into the Secret Service, and it was a Secret Service agent not too long after that that went, hey, psst, you don't want to do this. You don't yeah. know who you are. You don't want to get into this realm, you know, and, and uh, the Paul brothers ended up being somebody, you know, a couple of guys that I looked to as well and started questioning what, what, what the hell you find out that the fed is, is just as federal as federal express. And you start to go, okay, there's a whole game going on here that we're not taught about. Uh, yeah. And I want to open people's eyes to it. The problem is, as you know, there's a lot of cultural uh, religious belief around right versus left school otherwise government's great government's but like there's a lot of bs that's in there so how do you 
navigate these conversations and do it in uh, and and keep yourself emotionally in check to engage in civil discourse because the the greater population wants to do anything but. And from everything I've heard, you do a really good job of of keeping things in a relatively civil manner. How does that how does that work up here as you're going? Well, it's. It's been a weird thing to live through, uh, I'm sure for a lot of us, to live through the last, like, say, 10 years in this yeah. country where things have devolved to a level that you couldn't have, like, imagined before. Yeah. And and this was not the norm. It was not the norm that, say, someone from the left or someone from the right thought that the other side was literal, you know, Satan incarnate, like, you're evil for being on the other side. There was a time that I grew up in in America where there was civil debate and stuff like that. Not to say we didn't have our problems, but that wasn't one of them. Like people could communicate with each other. And I, that's just like who I am as a person. I'm, I'm interested in real discussions. I'm not interested in who can shout over the other one, you know, like that just doesn't appeal to me. So I always, it went, Whenever these things happen, I understand that not everybody is going to be reached by a rational argument. There are some people who are not interested in a rational argument um, in in the political world today, especially. There's there's lots of them. You know, you see, uh, what was it, uh, Matt Walsh, who had that documentary where he just asked everyone, "What is a woman?" and people Unreal. freak out. It's Unreal. like, okay, yep. so those people are not really interested in having a rational conversation. But I know I am, and I know there's. I'm not the only one and there's lots of other people like me. So I just always try to, when I'm in these moments say, well, I think to myself, like what, what would be the most compelling thing for me to hear? You know, like knowing what I know, what would be the thing that if someone said that to me, I'd go, yeah, that's a really good point. And I try to put it like that. It's very similar in doing stand-up comedy where in a sense you kind of go, well, what would make me laugh? What, yeah. what would I think is really funny? And yeah. then you try to say that to other people. And then you kind of see where the gap is. And so oh, I, you know, every now and then you're like, oh, I thought this was really funny, but the audience didn't. But then sometimes you're like, oh, they loved it. And I knew they would love that. And sure. then you kind of figure that out. And that's a, be- to me, that's a beautiful process, both with political commentary and comedy and all of that stuff. I love that, man. And I think sometimes you figure out where you think, you know, I, I think this people will be on this side of a rational argument too. And you find out that's not necessarily the case. So I did a, um, I got to help produce No Safe Spaces with uh, with Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. Mm-hmm. And also Dave Rubin and I went and did a couple of events. And uh, one of the events we did was in Northern California. And, and we were doing a premiere of the movie. And then we brought a bunch of my high school students at one of the campuses I had built. And they were engaging in a debate. And these high school students were talking about hard topics. They were talking about abortion, mandatory vaccination, pre-COVID, but still mandatory vaccination, um, you know, gun control. They were talking about some of these hot topics, but they wanted to show that it could be done in a civil fashion and that, hey, even young people could do this, right? And right. so we had this entire presentation put together. We had uh, almost a thousand tickets sold. We were doing it at a small Christian university. And as we got there... We initially, I mean, we had all, we had a thousand people there. We had the producer of the film was there. We were getting ready. To, we had people from the university come up and go, ah, we might need to ask you guys to leave. It's really what, what's, no, this is all going to be very, very civil. This is all going to be, is there protesters? Like what's going on? And, you know, Dave, we didn't really know much about Dave. He's a gay Jew. Um, what do we, I'm like. No, man, we're, we got to make so sometimes you where you think you're going to engage in some civil, you know, discourse and rational discussion that doesn't happen either. And that's a hard thing to keep emotions in check 
when we've got yeah. buttons One, pushed. 100%. And there there are things where it's very difficult to keep emotions in check. And I think there's been a lot of those over the last few years. Um, and I, I understand where that's a real challenge. It's been a challenge for myself personally. For I mean, sure. for, for, with several of these issues, but you know, like I, uh, I'm, I'm from New York City, I, I moved out and me and my family, have, I got them the hell out of there. Uh, yeah. um, over the last few years, actually pretty early on in the very beginning of the lockdowns, we moved out. But I know, like, um, like family businesses that were destroyed and shut down during the lockdowns and never made it back. And it's like, that's very personal for me. I know there's a lot of these issues, particularly with COVID, with foreign policy stuff, where like, I, you know, it's, it, there's some really horrible things and things that are like really worth fighting over, really worth being, you know, emotional over. But, you know, like anything else, I think part of being a man which I, you know, I guess is kind of the theme of this uh, project, yeah, right? Sure. It was part of being like a good man is it's not not feeling any of those emotions. It's not not feeling any of that passion. It's about channeling it into something productive. Mm -hmm. So no matter how upset you are with all of that stuff, you're like, okay, look, like, let me, <laughs> let me see how I can take this emotion that I'm feeling and channel it and convey it to people that it's like, hey, look, this is a real problem. And I can be very passionate when I speak about what, what a real problem this is, but it's also like my job to do it in a somewhat productive way. So that's what I try to keep in mind. I'm not, but by the way, I'm not always perfect at that. Nobody is, but that's, yeah. I mean, but that's, that's the heroic thinking that we want to lead with, you know, as men in society and as, as men who are leading our families too, we want to be that example and lead in, in that way. And, and, and we want to look to heroes that are doing that. I, I listened to your last podcast and you were talking about, um, the father of a friend of mine, you're talking about Mr. El Daniel Ellsberg. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael has become a friend of mine, somebody I've gotten to work with when I lived in the Bay Area. And and telling stories like that to my young kids are the things that I like. I continuously point to. Look at, the, look at what Daniel was putting himself into, but he knew he had to do the right thing. He had to take that step forward. So as you're looking at society, the way things are playing out now, and you've got kids of your own, correct? Yeah. Two. I, I, you have two, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how do you have those conversations do you have those conversations in terms of doing the right thing in terms of keeping you know acknowledging the emotions but keeping the emotions in check how do you bring that lesson into you know your household and again nobody's it's not a right or wrong thing it's not a perfection thing but we always talk about as dads the pursuit of perfection what is the best way we can do this to lead our kids how does that look in your house? well i well, well just to be uh full disclosure my kids are uh four and one so the conversations are usually about like you have to finish your dinner before you can have a cookie you know like that's more of the, that's the, we, I, we don't yeah. get too deep into politics uh yet but, <laughs> that's fair. yeah but i do uh i it is something particularly so, so my uh my daughter is four my boy is one and i i'll tell you that I, this is i i've had this feeling since i've had been a father since we had uh, our daughter um but particularly since having a boy i felt more of a pressure over the, like the last year or so that i think especially with the fact that you know a lot of the stuff i do is online it's going to yeah. live forever you know he'll see this at some point that i i think about like you know, the example that I want to set for him and what he what, what I would want him to see out of me. And and to me, I think there's there's a real value in just no matter what the effect is in telling the truth, 
Now, I'm not saying telling the truth is going to solve all of the world's problems. Um, although if all of us told the truth, it probably would help a lot. But I think w- even if it didn't move the the needle one inch, I still think there would be value in my my son knowing as he grows up that like that was what your dad did. Your dad told the truth. I think values like um, being prepared, knowing your stuff, knowing your, knowing what you're talking about before you talk about something that you've you've done your homework on it, and you you know these these are just like kind of values that I would like to instill into them. So even though they're a little young for them to understand any of this, this we're living through historic times, man. And you know, there's I, I think almost no one, no matter what your political views or your ideology are, I think it would be very hard to deny that. That what we've been living through over the last few years has been like something that books will be written about for decades. True. And we'll see what those books say, depending on who, you know, ends up true. What books get burned and what That's don't. Right. That's you know, right. But this is a, a, a historic time, and I'd like it to at least be known that like during these times, I was trying to tell the truth as I saw it. Mm, good for you, man. God, I freaking love that. We had um, you know, I'm I'd be interested to hear. What you think the biggest issue is that we're that we're facing right now, uh, you know, in this country and, and how that plays into us as fathers. But, um, you know, as I know, the war is 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 a massive issue. And what we've got going on with the destabilization of the currency. And last week we had um, a gentleman in and we were talking about, um, you know, really safeguarding our our funds and moving things into trusts and putting things into um, kind of getting outside of the 1040 system as much as we can. Um, and I was talking to the same gentleman today about the destabilization of the economy and where, you know, where that's looking and where you think that's going. Like, do you, what's kind of your, your best guess? What's the next thing? What are the, what are the things you're focusing on right now where you're like, okay, I think this is kind of the next issue everybody should be talking about a little more. I'll tell you right now, it's really hard. Because yeah. there's several that yeah. are so big. So obviously, over the last three years, the stuff with COVID was like sure. the biggest issue. I mean, this was like, it's hard to say when you're in the middle of it, because you don't, you know, uh, a good friend of mine and this really brilliant guy uh, named Jeff Dice. he was the, the president of the Mises Institute for years. Yeah. He just left the Mises Institute. Um, but he's uh, he said at one point, and I thought this was a good way to put it, where he was like, you know, when you're living through a revolution, that you don't go, oh, the revolution just happened. Yeah, it's it's only like later that yeah. they kind of historians go, oh, that was when the revolution really happened, and you know. But what we've been through over the last three years feels like something close to revolutionary. I mean, like the government's shut down society, and then you know, mandated like uh, pharmaceutical products that had to be congested before you could go back to work. And then, you know, at a certain point, you couldn't go to a Knicks game unless you had gotten the jab. And it is really crazy what happened over the last few years. Now, as that's dying down, it's kind of hard to say what that all meant, but it's something really big. What the precedent is for that, I I don't exactly know, but it's not good. Um, I'd say, okay, the war in Ukraine right now, and the the I think we have a higher threat of nuclear war in World War III than we've had probably since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is that it? I still think probably we're not going to go to nuclear war, but the fact that that threat has been so elevated is, yeah. if it happens, is the biggest story in the history of humanity. So that could be it. At the same time, as a result of this war, what we've seen, particularly over the last couple months, is um, 
Well, President Xi from China went to Moscow and met with Vladimir Putin, signed an economic agreement with him to trade in Chinese currency rather than U.S. dollars. Saudi Arabia, China also at the same time brokered a, a deal to kind of normalize political relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran. That is a really big deal. Sure. Um, it seems like India is siding with them. Brazil is siding with them. Uh, uh, Macron the other day said that he thinks Europe should be independent and not be uh, in such close relations with America and also shouldn't back America if there is a conflict in Taiwan. And that's just one European leader. It's not all of Europe, but there does seem to be this pattern of a major shift away from American hegemony. And that's big. Like, I don't know exactly what that means, but that's since at least 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were in the unipolar moment. It seems like the unipolar moment is ending. Um, it seems like the dollar is the world reserve currency is ending. This is a huge development, and I don't know exactly what the impact's going to be. At the same time, while all of that's happening, you have the uh, you know the destruction of the U.S. dollar. You also have what is, to me, probably the creepiest in all of this is the rise of ESGs and the DEI stuff and the um, the kind of talk of a central bank digital currency. Right. So, so there's all of these things that are kind of like all happening at once, and none of them are particularly good. You know, they're like all pretty devastatingly scary. Um, but we're in a, we're in a revolutionary moment right now. I think for sure. Uh, there's no way around it. Do you, are you familiar with Ian Smith, who's the New Jersey uh, gym owner, big old beard? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yep. So, um, Ian and I became became close during that time while he was still fighting for his gym, and he came on with our young men and. And, um, you know, we've been talking quite a bit over the last couple of years and, and, uh, we were talking yesterday and he says, you know, what, what, what's the thing, what's the thing that we look for first? What's the thing that we're doing first? I'm like, dude, we're doing the thing we need to do first, right? It's get our own house in order. It's get yeah. squared away as much as we can, because as much of those, you know, all those things that we're listing, those are all real. Those are all real threats. You and I, Dave Smith, Matt Bodro, Tim Kennedy, none of us have the ability to go shift any of that. So we need to get our stuff in order and make sure we're as solid as we can foundationally. Uh, yeah, well, I think there's almost a connection between those two things. Like, like what I advocate for is like understand the world yeah. and control your world. Yes, sir. Because you can't control the world. So don't go, let it drive you crazy. It's like, but you want to understand how, how serious this is, what a dangerous situation this is. And then when you say, okay, well, what can I do? Well, what you want to do is what you can control the most. Yes, and what sir. you can control the most is to protect yourself, your family, be good to your family, be good, you know, get get good people around you, cut the bad people out of your life if you can't improve that situation. Because this is no longer like this isn't a game anymore. This right. isn't it, it during peaceful times, you uh, can afford to be a lot more sloppy. That's you right. know, like you can you can maybe not protect your financial future if the whole general economy is doing great anyway. Eh, it might just work out. You know, it, you can afford to like like not get your own house in order a little bit more when the world's not going to ashes. But when it is, you really need to make sure you're on top of that stuff. So I think I think those two things are very related. Uh, spot freaking on, man. Spot on. Are you OK? We get some questions from some of these men who are much better than I. <laughs> Absolutely. Beautiful. And I believe it. So it says iPhone, but if I know a handsome man, that's Mr. Jay Rogers. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, Dave, it's great to meet you. I'm a big, big fan. Been listening to you and, and uh, all your shows and, and interviews for a while now. 
Um, so help me understand one thing I didn't understand. You you took a much bigger role with the libertarian movement more recently. Is that correct? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I've been a part of the libertarian movement for a long time now, but I think my profile has kind of risen more and more. And with that has come me taking like a bigger role. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's amazing. I, my my background more so in having been raised much more conservative. And as I've learned more and frankly, listened to more and more guys like you, I've come to a place where I, I view these parties primarily as cults. and. You know, I think one of the things that I see in guys like you in the libertarian movement, and, you know, I have, prim I primarily agree with most things on the conservative side, except when we get into, you know, military industrial complex things and all of this, the disingenuous control ideologies where I don't believe they actually care about the topics as much as using them to control people in their, in their base. But one of the questions I have is, you know, your ability and the libertarian movement's ability to have impact in in a system, you know, where where they they can't necessarily win. Um, one of the thoughts I've had is, you know, you you guys being able to have impact in whether it's whether it's being a voice as to which party you feel is the most dangerous at the current time, right? And you know, I the the one thing that I find so interesting, right? I have friends far right. I have friends that I would call moderate left. I don't have any friends that I would call far left, but even the friends that are moderate left, when I send them stuff that you've posted, they start to respond over time with kind of the, the cult line about people like you, which is that, you know, oh, he's, you've all of a sudden become all right. Right. And it's like, what the heck, how is this, how is this possible? So I see that. And I just think, I don't see that from people when I send your stuff to people on the far right or on the on the moderate right. It's more, okay, that's interesting. Or sometimes they're like, that's dumb, right? Because they just don't want to get outside their box, right? Um, but I just find it, it's wild how in step the the left is on those things. So what do you, what do you see as your the libertarian movement's ability to have the greatest impact in in stopping what is just these wild infringements on on our ability to make our own choices and freedoms of those choices. Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the question. It's, you know, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And a lot of times, like, it depends on how you think of all of these terms and these labels, because there are people, right, who sometimes it's not even about how far left you are. It's about how much you've bought into the current insanity because there are people like, say, uh, um, Jimmy Dore or Glenn Greenwald or even guys like Joe Rogan or Tim Poole. These guys all would have been considered on the left very recently. Yeah. But as soon as they Definitely. start making any sense, then they go, well, you're a right winger. <laughs> you know, so like by that yeah. logic, if if they're all right wingers just for making sense, then, yeah, the right wingers are the only ones who are making sense, you know. But so there's been what what's really interesting is that as this kind of. um there's been this this sweeping what we call wokeism kind of broadly it, there has been this sweeping movement that has a lot of left wing components to it but a lot of it is also just that all of the powerful institutions have gotten behind it and then it's kind of more of like a sheep thing it's like who's just following yeah. what's said all around them now to your point um the i, I think there's no question that what 
I, I don't think like the Democrats and the Republicans are equally bad. I don't think the left and the right are equally bad. Yeah. I think these days there is no question yeah. that what the Republicans say is much better than what the Democrats say. And in general, right wingers are a lot better than left wingers. But there yeah. it, it's more complicated than that. So it's not just like like and I'm not saying this is a clear answer one way or the other. I'm just saying that in some ways, Donald Trump being president was the best thing that ever happened to the left. Mm. Not in every way, but in many ways, it actually really helped them sure. when he was president. So, for example, the Southern Poverty Law Center had their biggest fundraising years ever. CNN was brought out of the dumpster fire of ratings and actually got back to having decent ratings. Now they're back in the tank that Biden's president. In in some ways, like when you have a, a, a political victory, it can kind of uh, like throw Kindle in the fire of your enemies. And so when yeah. if we're going to have a victory, we have to have something that not just is a victory in name only. And it's not just, oh, we own the libs. We got to actually get something of substance for that. And so you kind of see Correct. that to me. That's kind of the story of Donald Trump is that it's like, aha, we made all these liberals cry. And we all enjoyed watching the videos yes. of the Young Turks melting down and CNN melting down. And then the last year of his administration was 2020. Like, yeah. that, oh, great. Yeah. What a win for the country, you know? And so it's like, okay, no, we got to do a little bit better than that. And look, um, fundamentally, I'm not a political animal. I'm in, I'm really in the realm of like philosophy. Like I'm, I'm telling you what I believe and what I think is the correct thing. What ability that has to actually move the political needle. I don't know. I, I, I personally, I kind of think that the idea that we're all married to, myself included to some degree, which is like that we're going to save America, that the right person will come along and we'll vote for him to be president, and then he'll go to Washington and he'll clean everything up, I think is highly unlikely. I think that the, yeah. the, the, the entrenched power in Washington is so deep and so corrupt and so much worse than any of us even understand that probably the best thing anyone could do is just wake up the masses and so that's kind of what I try to do. I think we're, there's actually a lot more hope in like decentralization, um, a community, like a sheriff of some community saying, there, there was just the other day I saw some sheriff, uh, oh, who was it? Damn, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting this. But you guys, one of you guys might remember, but there was just some local like mayor and a sheriff saying like, we don't recognize the ATF. Yep. And like, if you come in here, we're not responding to anything you do. I go, that's the future. To me, that's like what we should hope to be doing. That's like, like gaining local control and trying to nullify federal policy. Because the idea that you're going to get into like the White House and have the entire corporate press and the CIA and the FBI and the NSA and the establishment of both political parties working against you, but you're going to solve all the problems seems so far-fetched. Whereas like you having a real influence over your community seems like much more attainable. And then to connect it back to what we were just talking about, well, what does that mean you having an influence over your own community? Well, probably it, I mean, I'm sure it means you having some good ideas, but you know, if you're like the guy who's always borrowing money from everyone else, whose house is falling apart, whose family's in disarray, and then you go, Hey guys, I got some really good ideas. 
probably, even if you have good ideas, there's not too many people who are going to want to like listen to you. But if you're the guy who's like, oh, you know, our neighbor's house burned down and he was the first one there helping us clean it up and he was contributing money and he's got such a lovely family and I always see him at church every week. And I, you know, like if you're kind of a pillar in your community and you have some good ideas, I don't know about you guys, but that's the first guy I'm listening to. Even if I don't agree with his politics, I kind of want to hear what that guy has to say because I just respect him as a man. And so that to me is is really what our best path going forward is. I just happen to be really interested in like the bigger political ideas. I like that stuff. Sure. Thanks, man. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Super powerful. Do you, by, do you know a gentleman named Chris Roofer out of California by any chance? He's a big, big donor to the Libertarian Party, and he's very connected in yeah, that, that world. Too. I know the name. I know the, the name. Tomato, I can't... tomato magnate. So it's tomato farmer out there. He's got a billion okay. dollar Morningstar Corporation. So um, Chris is a uh, was a former business partner of mine. He helped me with all the schools that I was launching. He was helping. I was partnering with him and his foundation to snatch up the properties where we were we were building these campuses. And so 2020 came along and, and uh, you know, everybody's closing things down and everybody's saying the schools have to close. Well, we, we started buying more properties. We started expanding. We started creating more schools. We didn't close down. Um, we just said, no, this is what the kids need. And, and here's why we don't have to close down. So we stayed open the whole time and the kids were were thriving. So Joe Jorgensen reached out. She said, hey, I want to do my Northern California event at one of your campuses because you guys were like, that's great. That's awesome. So she came. I got to introduce her. They said, will you introduce her? I said, yes. They, she, they said, will you introduce her as next president of the United States? I said, I'll just introduce her as this really cool lady. And uh, so, <laughs> so we introduced her. She has a great event. We go out to dinner afterwards. And when we got done, Chris comes up to me. He goes, so what do you think? I said, what do you think about what? He says, is anybody going to follow her? And I said, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get a strong, I want to follow her vibe. And he says, yeah, he says, and look, the Libertarian Party, what we need to be doing, he says exactly what you said. He said, we just need to be waking up the masses to do what we're doing here, to push back in our local communities and do what's right, no matter what's going on in the bigger picture. And we need a strong voice that's telling people to do that more than we need somebody that's saying, I'm going to come in and save the world. He was right, like lockstep with what you were talking about right there. I think it's that. Yeah. And and I, I always say, like, my, my thing is that I, ideas are powerful. Yes, sir. You know, and like sometimes, you know, Thomas Paine wrote pamphlets. That's what he did. He yeah. just wrote these pamphlets and like that. And they changed the world. Yep. And it wasn't like he didn't go out and win a battle himself. And he didn't like become a political leader or anything like that. But he just put these like powerful ideas out there that really resonated with people. And this was like in a time when that's how you had to distribute information. You right. know, like right. imagine how difficult that would be uh, compared to what we have the, this luxury of being able to do things like this, where yep. we can just talk to a lot of people like effortlessly. Um and so I always try to keep that in mind. There's there's tremendous power in just ideas and waking people up. And you know, you think about uh the the massive propaganda campaigns that the elite launch on the people. Like they there's a reason why they do that. It's because they know that they can't just get away with whatever they want to unless they work up some amount of popular support. You know, and like, that's why they're always trying to propagandize the people. So like they recognize that and we should recognize it too, that it's, you know, winning hearts and minds is important. You know, this was one of the major problems with the, um, you know, the occupations in Iraq and Afghanistan was that it was like, look, we, we have all the military might in the world. We have all the money in the world. It's not any of that, but it's like, do these people want what we're trying to give them? 
right. And if they don't want it, then it doesn't matter if you're there for 20 years, you know? It doesn't matter. If that's not what they're looking for, then that's not going to be bought. And if you haven't been able to win, you know, this is why they were talking about that for so long throughout Iraq and Afghanistan, winning hearts and minds. And it's like, because that's what you actually need to do to build something. And so like that, that I think should be a big part of our goal here is like, oh yeah, actually winning people over. And that's one thing that I'm very encouraged by, no matter how bad all those, those, uh, when you asked me what the biggest issue was and all the issues yeah. I laid out, how bad they all are. It's like, one of the things that really encourages me is you go, look, look at the trust in the corporate press. Look at the trust in mainstream institutions. Look at any of this stuff. You know, look at it. There's, I just saw a poll the other day where it's something like a clear majority of Americans don't buy into the transgenderism stuff. And a clear majority of Americans don't, don't buy into the vaccination stuff anymore. I mean, it was something like the first round they coerced people into getting, but who's gotten like boosted and boosted more and more. It's like not the CDC was recommending your kids get the COVID vaccine. It's like 5% of people have gotten their kids vaccinated. It's like, that's interesting, man. They're not winning over hearts and minds anymore. And you look at like Joe Biden and you're like, yeah, man, there's just no way. There's no way that this guy is actually like people are buying into what he's selling. And that's encouraging. Like there's a lot of potential there. Oh, I agree. Well said, sir. Dan, go ahead, sir. Danny C. All right, Dan, we don't have audio on you, bud. So come out, come back oh, in. Let me there know. we go. I'm sorry. There you oh, go. There you go. All right, there we go. All right. All right. Dave, thank you for being here. Great to see you, man. It's surreal. I was I was just listening to you and I think Michael Malice like yesterday. And it's just uh it's cool to see you. Um, quick question when, I mean, barring, assuming that we don't fall into like thermonuclear war from your previous comments and stuff, um, what would you say is like the biggest kind of the biggest challenge facing, you know, your kids and my kids, the next generation, specifically how it relates to the university system. Is that something that is, that is salvageable or something that needs to, um, that, you know, can be changed and just be, you know, improved. And what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question. You know, again, if we're talking specifically about the university system, like my, my kids are four and one. So to predict what anything is going to look like in 14 to 17 years is very difficult. I mean, look, what, what is AI going to do? What is going to, you know, I have no idea. Um, I have a very hard time imagining that by the time my kids go to college, it's going to look like anything like what college looks like today, or by the time they'd be college ready, you know, so I don't know what what, you know, I'm going to have to see how things develop. Um, I'd say the the university, uh, uh, look, if you have a kid who's really grounded, and you've really like, you know, like, you know, this kid is really solid and really understands kind of these perverse ideologies that are going to be pushed into them in college. And you think they've got, a, they're, they're, they're really prepared to guard against that. And they're uh, like a straight A student who wants to be a doctor. And they cannot be a doctor unless they go to college and get a, a degree and then go to medical school or something like that. I could understand uh, the case to send your kid to college. There's probably a few other cases short of that. I'm like, do not send your kids to college, man. These are factories to indoctrinate your kids to hate you. Why on earth would you pay for that? 
Like, in, <laughs> like if you, you know, it's, it's been for a while now, I think it's been kind of like, um, the just common wisdom is like, yeah, you send your kids to college after high school. And that I think hasn't made sense for a long time, but things have really changed over the last five to 10 years where they have ramped up and really accelerated the level to which they're indoctrinating kids with the most toxic ideology. And I just think that look in general, I, look, I, if an 18-year-old came to me and said they wanted to start a business and they needed $100,000 to invest in the business, you know, I think my response would be like, well, what's the plan here? You know, like, what, what's your business plan? Do you have something written up? I'd like to look over it. I'd like to see when are you going to be profitable? How much? What do you project your sales to look like? I'd have a lot of questions before I would just invest $100,000 into an 18-year-old's business. I think we should treat college the same way. Like, wait, what? What is it you're asking for here? Well, what's your plan? And specifically with the stuff that they're programming into kids, I mean, you, look, you can go to a community college and, and you know, have professors who are, are brilliant. And you, you can, you know, there's lots of other alternative options where you, you can get the same value that you would out of that. But if you're talking about like a traditional liberal arts, uh, four year college under the, like, if my kids were 17 right now, there is almost no way that I would support sending them there. I mean, almost just no way. It's just too crazy. And, and aside from that, aside from the fact that they're spending a ton of money to, uh, and and getting uh, what seems to me to be nothing of value other than like being indoctrinated with an ideology that I despise. Like, what are even like the social value? You know, they say, oh, you want to go there for the social experience? Like what? To go like get blackout drunk at keg parties or something like that? Like, I don't know. I don't think so. If my kids are ever going to do that, it's I'm certainly not going to be paying for it. And so uh, I'm very, very, uh, I'd be very hesitant to support your kids going to college again. There are there are situations that's an except that that are exceptions to that. Um, but I think they're not that many. I'm with you. Oh, so good. Agreed. Thank you, sir. Thank you, brother. Well done, Nicholas. Go ahead, sir. Let's see, unmuted. Okay. Uh, hi, Matt and Dave and everyone else here. This is awesome, and I'm just so thankful to be here. And we're all. Thankful for just everybody coming here and sharing our space together. And uh, Dave, I, I really don't really have much of a question. It's more of just like some thoughts that I'd like to hear about what you think about them. And uh, I'm just curious about what your thoughts are on Apogee and similar Vanguard groups like this. You know, Vanguard's meaning like a small group of dedicated people working towards a goal, like whatever it is that we're working towards. And, uh, you know, th these are all being kind of small created around the country in like small little groups and factions. And to me, it looks like groups of real Americans who are just like fed up with the rule of these, like we were just saying about the universities, like these systems and institutions that have been made for us by these elites of whoever they are, you know, whoever, whatever you want to label them. And it feels like we're refounding America. And I'm just wondering, like, how far do we take this? You know, like, do we need to start our own currency? Do we need to create our own constitution? I mean, what what is the how wh where can we go from here? What do we do with this? Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, question. I mean, okay, so to 
to answer the first question, I think it's just incredible, man. I think what you guys are doing is awesome. And I do think there's really something very profound and accurate about what you said about kind of recreating America. You know, one of the reasons why I, I am a, a radical libertarian and why I hate uh, the growth of government so much is because what happens is when as government grows, it kind of crowds out and destroys civil society. And this, like, even things like from the very beginning of like the New Deal, like the creation of Social Security, it's like, oh, okay, the government's going to create your retirement plan. Well, what was the old retirement plan before Social Security? It was your kids would take care of you. And so it's already kind of like perverting these incentives where you're like, oh, well, I want to have kids and I want to be good to my kids and take care of them when they're young. And then they'll take care of me when I'm old. And the same thing happened with the entire rise of the welfare state. It crowded out all of like the churches and communities and all the other things that we used to traditionally rely on to take care of people who did it a much better job because the government comes in and has this kind of like one size fits all. Okay, if you make below this number, you get a check of this amount. Whereas like a community might be like, wait, we know that guy. He's an able-bodied man who's just lazy, you know? But then we also know this other guy and he like, you know, lost a leg in the war. And so it's like, oh, okay, he, he deserves some help. He doesn't. Like you can decide that much better at a communal level. So anyway, before the rise of the welfare state, it was a normal thing that there used to be these kind of like fraternal groups who would come together and all help each other out and kind of like discuss these things. And, and the rise of, of big government has destroyed so much of this. And particularly now, when we live in this world with the most gigantic of big governments and all the, the culture, the top-down culture is totally like demonizing men and masculinity and paternity and all of these things. It's, I think this is so important. Now, what you ask about, like, do we start our own currency or write our own constitution? I mean, look, I'm open to that idea. I, I, I think it's a great idea. Um, we we need people probably uh, smarter than me to come up with real, like a real game plan here. But I know that whatever comes at us next, the more, you know, like some some very basic old, like, I don't know, like Native American logic or something like that, where you're like, you know, what... It was the old thing where they pass around one stick and you can break it easily, but then they pass around a lot of sticks and you can't. It's like alone we're weak, together we're strong. And the more people you have in a group with you, the stronger you're going to be. So I don't know exactly what we can do with these communities, but I know we're way better off having them than not having them. Well said. Yeah, that was amazing, man. And, um, you know, it, it's great having you here with us and like that you're being a part of this. And like you were saying about the local communities, you know, I, how do how can like what would you say that we can do to unify like our local communities? You know, like I try and talk to people. Obviously, it's like I can only say so much because I don't want to lose my job. So sure. that sucks. But it's like, how do I bootstrap these local the local community, just people in general, and then like the local elites, whoever they are, and any other right-leaning people to like come together in something like this, you know, like actually make a community again. And I find it troublesome because like you get a lot of the guys who are, you know, anti-leftist and all of their whatever propaganda, but it's like, they're just on the MAGA train. And it's like, that's not, that's not a thing. We need to stop thinking about that. Like we need to remove ourselves from whatever the Trump train is. Like that's not working. That's not, I, I feel like that's not a, not a, a viable option. 
Yeah, no, look, I agree with you. Um, and I've been like a sharp critic of Donald Trump for, you know, many reasons. Um, but uh, not for the typical ones that you'll hear on CNN, but kind of like for the opposite. Um, like my criticism of him is like that he didn't fire Fauci on day one. Uh, but, you know, I think that, look, it is human nature to when you feel under attack to try to find a strong leader and fall behind them. So I would be somewhat sympathetic to people who, you know, are are on that train and understand why they are. I would do, look, it's, a, it's, you're on a tightrope. Like when you say, like, I want to say as much as I can, but not risk my livelihood. It's like, yeah, look, your first priority is to protect yourself and protect your family, you know? So like, that's the number one priority. So then find within that, once you're protected, what type of wiggle room do you have? What can you say and get away with? And then try to say what you can there. But I think, um, you know, I don't have like a perfect blueprint to any of this, but the more you can talk to people, I also think it's like, look, we we got to kind of even though we're in a crazy moment right now we got to take a long view of all this stuff to me it's like the best thing you can do to protect your kids and the next generation and like kind of like make it better for them going forward i mean i don't know if you have kids um but uh no but that no. that well that to me is almost like what's most important so like most important is finding a way where you can live and thrive find a good woman, start a family with her, and then like kind of protect them. That's like, that's what the goal should ultimately uh, always be. But always just do as much as you can. You know, it's like, you're never going to be able to sometimes there's this thing like it's like a psychological like uh, um, thing where sometimes, you know, if you're, uh, if you're really living the wrong way, and things are all against you and you're like oh my god i've ruined my relationship and i've ruined my job and i've ruined this and i'm this and i'm going to get evicted and all of this and then you say to yourself all right i'm going to wake up tomorrow and i'm going to fix all of it and then you wake up tomorrow and you you give it you know you work for a half hour and you go this is insurmountable and then you just feel bad and collapse and fall down again but that's not how you fix things what you do is you say, okay, what's one attainable thing I can do tomorrow that I can absolutely do? And you go, all right, well, tomorrow you could bust out, you know, 20 push-ups and run three laps around the block. And you go, okay. And then you do that. And then you feel good about the fact that you did that. And then you go, okay, well, what's one thing I can do tomorrow? All right, tomorrow I can clean up my whole, you know, uh, garage or whatever. And then you do that. And then, you know, you pick one thing at a time, pick small achievable goals and then go accomplish that and feel good about that. And then what, you know, every centimeter counts. So that, that'd be my, my advice. So good, man. So good. Yeah. And it goes down to what, what you just put in the chat there, you know, Brian talking about your older daughter, she's not just attend college, working on trying to figure out her next step, taking the next step, getting up and taking the next step is the path. We kind of, we've started to figure out at one point that just taking the next step on a path ends up being the majority of the path. I mean, that's yeah. really where it is. That's why we say fire aim ready, right? Start, just start going through a door and then you see what's there and you start walking forward and you go, okay, now there's two more doors. Yeah, I'm going to go down this one, right? It's the fire aim ready. It's I love that. However, you said that taking the first step down the path ends up being like the biggest step. Cause that is, cause once you get moving, man, inertia is a powerful force. And then you're okay. Now you're moving. Now you're the guy who's walking down the path rather than the guy who's just thinking about it. That's exactly right. G go ahead, sir. Hey, what's going on, Dave? Thank you for joining us today, man. Um, uh, well, first off, shout out to all of us uh, raising little John Connors uh, to take on Skynet later on in the future. No, but I wanted to ask you about like uh, the, the brainwashing, right? Like the brainwashing that goes on in all these institutions. I remember 
uh, during like the Gore and the Bush run, right, election, uh, in every period in my high school class, man, every teacher was talking about Democrats are the good guys, Democrats are the good guys, Democrats are the good guys. I go home that night, my mom and dad go vote, they come back, my mom votes for Gore, my dad votes for Bush, right? And I get mad at my dad for voting for Bush. And I, I'm like going off and I don't even know why I'm mad. I, yeah. I don't know why I'm angry. I'm just going off on him. And uh, he tells me, literally, he's like, well, Gore was for abortion and Bush wasn't. So I'm, I'm not for abortion. So I just voted for Bush. That was like his simple little answer. And I was just like, uh, okay, like, well, yeah, I didn't even know that that was like, I didn't know any of the specifics, you know what I mean? So, and it was all brainwashing, man. It was all, that was what was being pumped and indoctrinated in me, even at that time in 2000. So I was just wondering, like, what your take, as you have these conversations with all these people, like, what is it that you think snaps them out of that? Like, is it environment? Is it, you know, what is it that you think? Sorry. Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? And I can remember being like kind of indoctrinated myself in, in high school years like that. And you can kind of understand where it's like you almost have this desire to have an opinion. Yeah. And then someone just hands you the narrative and you go, oh, great. All right. It was just handed to me. Now I get to have a strong opinion on this thing. And so it, you kind of, you know, look, what I what I strive to do with like my kids is to, and I'm not trying to indoctrinate my kids. Like, I don't want, I don't ever want it to be like a thing where my kids feel like they have to have, like, they have to be a libertarian like me because I'm a libertarian. I, I, I'm, I, I don't, my kids can figure out what their own views of the world are. I do insist that they know what my views are. Like, I do insist that they know that I tell them, look, I believe this and this is why I believe this, but then they can form their own views. So I want to kind of like, inoculate them against that propaganda as much as possible. And I will always give them the counter argument to the, the prevalent propaganda. So they at least know the other side of it, but I don't know. The truth is that, you know, like in the movie, the matrix, when they go in and they, they like uh, uh, Morgan Freeman goes in and like saves uh, Neo at the beginning, but it's always, it's because he was already questioning these things like they have to find someone who's already questioning these things and then they can red pill him. It's not like they can't just go up to any random person and, and red pill them. It doesn't work like that. And in the same way, I don't think that I actually ever like pull anyone out of this propaganda. It's more like the people who are already questioning it and already going like something doesn't add up here and they're kind of searching for truth. If they hear the message, they might be like, yeah, that's what I was looking for the whole time. And one of these things, it's like a beautiful thing about the human spirit. You know, I remember uh, Murray Rothbard, who's a great libertarian uh, uh, thinker and, and brilliant, brilliant economist and philosopher. He was writing about this. He died in like 1995 or 1996, but he did live through the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he wrote this piece after the Soviet Union fell. And he said one of the most beautiful things about it was that the, at the time, it, the, the Soviets had been trying to convince people that they had created the new socialist man. And so their response to people saying like, well, look, no one's going to want to live under socialism because who's going to want to be the garbage man when you could be the artist? You know, like who would if, the, if there's no incentive difference, who's choosing to go like take garbage out every day when they could just paint, you know, and the, the Soviet counter to that was that we've created a new Soviet man who isn't isn't bogged down by self-interest 
They are, want to do what's best for the community, so they'll be happy to take garbage out, even though they don't make any more than the painter, because they want to do what's best for the community. And that these silly little forces like devotion to family, religion, nationality, and self-interest, they've been eradicated. And a lot of people after the Soviet Union have been around for like 70 years were like, maybe that's true. I mean, maybe they actually did this. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, what rose up right away was nationalism. They all broke off into their own nationalities. They all broke off into at least being somewhat capitalist, much more so than before. Um, Self-interest. They wanted American blue jeans and rock and roll and like all and like all of those things. And you realize that it's like, oh, no, there is no matter how much you suppress it, there is this human instinct to desire truth and freedom and all of these things. And we see that right now. Sometimes it manifests itself in very bad ways. I mean, I think there's a reason why, say, uh, like Andrew Tate has become the most like popular person on the internet. Now, I hate all the pimp shit that he's like promoting. I just, I, I hate that. I'm a family man. That is not what I'm about at all. But I also understand it, you know, I understand where there's this desire from young men, like looking for like a strong, badass man who's telling them to go like achieve something and be awesome. And, to, and so I, I, j just to answer your question, it's not that we can pull people out, but we can find people who are looking to be pulled out. That's more like what we're trying to do here. <sighs> yeah, that, that's, that's so good. It all goes back to the matrix, huh, huh Matt? <laughs> no, doubt, man. no doubt. Yeah, we've gotten into that a couple of times. And, and Hormozy used a, an example out of that too, you know, and but it's so true, man. And I think what you're saying is spot on. It is, we're, we're just fishing. You're fishing. You're putting the good stuff out there and going, hey, man, and then you're going to, it's only the people that are hungry that are going to take that bite. You yeah. know, just the reality where we are. Yeah, so good, man. Um, are you okay? Do you have time for another one? Here, I yeah, want to make Absolutely, let's do it. So, thank you, brother. Mr. Hunt, go ahead, sir. Thank you, Matt. Hey, Dave, uh, my name's Brian Hunt. Nice to meet you. Thanks for being here. My question is, what are your thoughts on corporate America and the agendas that are being pushed and the double standards specifically around, say, like the diversity, equity, and in inclusion um, agendas? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's creepy. I mean, in many ways, it's it's uh, as creepy as uh, everything that the federal government is doing. And it seems more and more like it's hard to separate the two, you know, like in the same way that it's kind of hard to separate CNN from the CIA. It's kind of hard to separate big corporate America from the White House because they all seem to have the exact same agenda and in lockstep, you know, and it's it's very it's weird to see. Like that was always kind of true in my lifetime, but it's so much more pronounced now. And um, so I think there's all types of like economic incentives that are involved in that, you know, like it's, uh, it, it, it's, you know, over the last few years, and this is part of like the government getting bigger and bigger and bigger, is that big giant corporations who the system is more and more rigged for. And there's lots of examples of this where it's, you know, it, it look, I mean, think about the lockdowns in 2020, you know, midsize and small businesses got absolutely wiped out. Giant corporations got big bailouts. And then, of course, if you can't go shop, you know, the store down the road from you has to close down, but Amazon's open. So the big guys benefit tremendously from this government intervention. Um, and then it's not so shocking that what they care about isn't just so much their customer especially when they've got like millions and millions of customers, 
But what they care about is the government and getting the government on their side. So they'd much rather do the government's bidding than actually care about their customers. However, I do think that um, despite all of this craziness, there are some market forces that still exist. I was very happy to see, not that I even care about these issues because I think there's much more important things, um, but I, I guess I do still care. But I was really happy to see Anheuser-Busch stock crash for a little bit. You know, like I think that was necessary for there to be like a little bit of a black eye. Like, come on, man. You can only slap people across the face so much that some guy who drinks Bud Light, you know, and the the, uh, the head of marketing woman there said the thing about how we have a problem because we have too much of like a fratty bro culture. And you're like, I don't know about you. And I'm not saying frat guys don't drink Bud Light. But when I think of Bud Light, I don't think of like a frat culture. I think of like a working man culture. I think of like the trucker or the roofer or something like that who just got off work and wants to have a nice cold one. And like now he's got to, you know, he's got to look at this picture, <laughs> this freak on his, I don't mean to be a dick, but like, Jesus, man, like not even like, it's not even like a real transgender person. It's like the one who almost seems like they're mocking transgender people, you know, like even this Dylan guy, even see, it almost seemed like an SNL spoof of a transgender person, like who they were. And so, it's kind of interesting. And then they come out with this apology letter. And so like, I don't know, I'm kind of hope I mean, it wasn't really an apology, but it was something. And so I'm kind of hoping that the people do have some power to exert some like at the end of the day, Bud Light might care about like their diversity, inclusion and equity stuff. And they might care about getting money from the federal government, but like they still need people to buy Bud Light. That's still a big part of their business model is that people buy their beer. And so hopefully people do kind of wake up to realize that there is a lot of power in the consumer. I know we live in a much more complex economy, but look, this is something that um, like the, the civil rights movement in, in the uh, Jim Crow South really recognized that like, look, there was power, there's real power in consumerism. And there were a lot of these companies that were segregated that were getting black customers. At a certain point, they were like, "Yo, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna buy this anymore. We're not going to support this company." And there, there was power in that. It started putting a lot of pressure on a lot of these companies. And so now we're in some weird reverse flip thing where it's like the kind of social pressure is to be kind of anti-male and anti-white and anti-straight and anti-cis or whatever they call it. And I think that the the more we could borrow some of those techniques like that. That would be good. We got to fight a battle on all fronts right now, but that's certainly one. But you're right. The corporate America is um is really, really toxic right now. And I don't know. I think things might get worse before they get better. But it's there's again, the whole theme we've been talking about, a mass awakening of people is is pretty, pretty damn important here. So good. What do you think? Thank you. Mm -hmm. I I know we got two more. I won't let any more hands up. It's up to you. I want to make sure if you have a heart out, I want to be respectful. No, it's no problem. We could we could do two more. Let's do it. Awesome, man. Thank you. Mike, go ahead, sir. So that already sorry. Uh, what's up, everybody? Uh, so in the Civil War, they say at any given time there was ten thousand different battles going on at one time, right? Um and at that point, we get through each other that those battles were taking place. Um, with everyone in America, don't you see us as, as being at that state right now as we are with the, the school shootings and the, the audio is um, audio. BLM. 
Yeah, your audio is chopping up a little bit. I got I got part of that, but maybe if Mike. Okay, Mike, sorry. Um, no, no worries. And if it doesn't work, you can put it in the chat, and we can make sure we can get it from there too. If that's better. How's that? Better, much better. Maybe maybe I was too close. How's that? Yeah, why don't you, why don't we go ahead and put it in the uh, in the chat if you don't mind? Put it in the chat. I'll get Chris's question, and then you can get in the chat because sure. it's still being choppy, bud. Sorry. No worries. Thank you, brother. Chris, go ahead, sir. Thanks, Matt. And uh, thanks, Dave, for coming on. I appreciate it, man. Uh, question I have for you is, I'm all about the mass awakening. What exactly, and I'm all about local decentralization as well. I think that there's great power in decentralization, even from like an ecological perspective, if you mm -hmm. take it through that lens. But my question for you is, is what does that look like in a country that is divided along almost everything from political ties to social agendas in the shape of resiliency, meaning like safety or utilities? Like, so we have a mass awakening, but what does that look like for the resiliency of each of the peoples in those communities that are decentralized? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And what exactly it looks like, I don't know. Um, I think that, so if you say like the example I gave before of like one little like a uh, um, community saying they won't recognize the ATF. If you think of um, during uh, the COVID lockdowns where you had different areas, there were, there were like a couple dozen sheriffs around the country who said they simply wouldn't enforce lockdowns or mandates. And they didn't. And those communities were able to live without those. Um, and then you had a couple states, even South Dakota, uh, where I got to say, Christy Nome really did a great job. There were no lockdowns, no mandates, and people there lived m not normal, but much closer to normal than in the other 49 states. Of course, Ron DeSantis, after being very bad initially for the first month or so of COVID, flipped around and actually did a very good job, I think, on COVID for the rest, uh, for the, rest of the duration. I give him a lot of credit for that because it was a very, you know politically difficult and risky thing to do uh, during those times. So what exactly it looks like, I, I don't know. But I think that um, what you're seeing in big cities across the country is that they're becoming more and more unlivable. Um, I'm somebody who's from I'm from New York City and grew up there my entire life. And I, I've got out, got out with family. Um, I know a lot of other people like the, the in that situation. People are fleeing California and Los Angeles and Chicago and and Baltimore and other cities just by the millions. And so, if those people can go to some uh, other areas, uh, the people who are fleeing are the ones who want to get away from that type of polity. If they can at least go somewhere where there's some gun rights, there's some you know sanity in the community. Um, I think that they can put themselves in a position to protect themselves better. What exactly it looks like, I don't know. And I don't think any of us know, you know, it's like, but I think that we know we have to get away from this. Mm -hmm. And so something else has to be done. <laughs> and, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, like I'm, I'm one of these people, I don't believe that like history is predetermined. I think it's like what men do is going to determine what happens in the future. And so hopefully we can do things that will make that a more positive future. Great. Answer. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, bro. Thank you very much.
Great answer. And Mike got his in the chat there. Last one, guys. So it says at any given time during the Civil War, 10,000 battles going on at a given time with zero communication across the United States. Aren't we there with all the school shooting and BLM, et cetera? Second, the fentanyl is the real pandemic. China and Mexico, I know more people connected to fentanyl deaths versus COVID. Any thoughts on those? Yeah, well, I mean, look, all of that's really good points. Yeah, man, I mean, the fentanyl thing is just, it's just yeah. horrible. I mean, I know, as what is a 100,000 ODs a year or something like that, something in that ballpark. And, and that's just the overdose deaths. I mean, that's not even counting like the amount of people who just become addicts and their lives are ruined and stuff. So it's a real like, yeah, an absolute epidemic. Um, and Look, I, I get the point that you're making. Um, yeah, the school shootings and the ODs and a lot of these, and they're kind of connected. I think probably what is a major theme of this group here is that they're all kind of connected to one central thing, which is a crisis in masculinity and the lack of fatherhood and, and male leadership and stuff like that. Um, now, I would say, and I don't mean this even to disagree with you, because I understand the point you're making. But when you make these comparisons to like the Civil War or something like that, you go, look, I mean, it where we are is bad and very challenging, but it's not the Civil War. You know, it's not 10,000, you know, there is something, you know, uh, it's not people dying by the hundreds of thousands. And okay, I should take that back already because yes it is people dying of the hundreds of thousands um but also by the way with our uh with the size of our population you know that compared to the size of the population in 1863 or whatever that that would actually be a much bigger uh thing I'm, my point is that it's not that the liberals and the conservatives are taking arms and going out and just fighting and dying in the streets every day but it does seem like there's some type of like kind of cold civil war going on here i try to you know i try to keep things in perspective um, so like my, uh, like I'm, I'm Jewish and, uh, my grandfather was, uh, grew up in Germany. He was a Jew who grew up in Nazi Germany and he fled the country in 1938. Uh, he was the only member of his family who was able to get out and the, the rest of them all died, uh, died in the war, died in camps, died in some situation like that. And then he came over here. And he enlisted in the army right away because that got you quick citizenship. And also, I think he wanted to go fight some Germans. And so he went back over and he was a soldier in World War II. And this was all the war ended. I think he was 19 when the war ended and he came home and then met my, met my grandmother the next year, I believe. So it's like by the time he was 20. You know, like when he was 20, he had already been through like the rise of the Nazis, the Holocaust, being a soldier in World War II, like really bloody, you know, fighting was injured, like all types of stuff. Then he went back and was like a translator and like some trials or something like that. But I'm just saying that we're going through a difficult time here. It's not the most difficult time that's ever been gone through, you know, like there, there have been many men who came before us who went through horrific things that were actually quite a bit worse than than where we are right now. That's not to downplay what this is. And like, yes, it does seem like between like school shootings and the drug uh, uh, overdose epidemic and the insane when you talk about Black Lives Matter, just like the insane racialized kind of ideology that is pitting everybody against each other. It's a thing. It's a really bad thing. But I also think that, you know, my grandfather went through that entire storm and then went on to like lead a life and raise a family and was a good man. And, you know, like, like was a good father and a good grandfather to me. And 
So what we got to kind of focus on is the fact that it's like, yep, we're going through a storm. Lots of men have been through storms before. And we got to get through that. Our goal is to get through this one. And the, the natural cycle of things is there's a storm and then a calm. Then the sun comes back out. You know, then we all get happy. We enjoy a nice picnic. And then we go, oh, that cloud looks pretty black. And then another storm comes out, <laughs> comes in again. So that's kind of the natural cycle of things. And we're in a storm right now. And we got to figure out the best way to get through it. You have now taken the step to becoming a great leader of tomorrow. Join the Apogee program by visiting www.apogeestrong.com. For inquiries, contact us 916-728-0606 or email matt at apogeestrong.com. Thank you for listening to Essential 11, Shaping Leaders Among Leaders. Stay tuned for more episodes.